Today, at our different locations, we start this new series called The Shadow King of the Life and Leadership of one of the most powerful yet controversial characters in all of the 66 books of the Bible. Excited to, to uh, jump into this biopic of a larger-than-life person on the stage of human history. When it comes to history, there are many leaders who have made a name for themselves, but only a handful of them have been, ever been afforded the title Great. Many leaders who have fought through adversity, leaders who have conquered nations, leaders who have led nations, leaders who have forged alliances, yet only a handful have ever been named the greats. Mother Russia has Catherine the Great in the late 1700s who led Russia to a time of prosperity. Interesting fact, she uh, staged a coup d'etat, an overturn of the throne, and it was her own husband, Peter III, that she overthrew and became the great. That's an awkward supper the next day. Hey, hun, <laughs> pass the potatoes, and sorry about that. We have in England, Alfred the Great, a wonderful leader and military prowess. In Greece, uh, we have the Greek warrior uh, leader, General Alexander the Great. In Persia, Cyrus the Great. We don't have very many uh, people other than that. In fact, uh, no American leader has been given the title the Great, <laughs> except maybe you and your own dreams, okay? The, you know, yeah. Uh, we don't have a Lincoln the Great. We don't have, uh, you know, a Patton, a General Patton the Great. Uh, that title is reserved in history for some reason. In a weird turn of events, there is an Israeli monarch, a king over Israel, that was given the name Great, but given to it by himself, by himself. It wasn't history that gave him the name. He gave himself the name, and that was Herod the Great who lived during the time of Jesus' birth and actually was so jealous and so suspicious of any other kind of authority, he was a bloodthirsty murderer. If he ever felt a son was growing in stature, growing in prominence, he would kill his own flesh and blood. He had his wives killed. He had his own mother-in-law killed, which, you know, I mean, <laughs> can make sense sometimes, you know. We... He, uh, Julius Caesar said this about Herod the Great, that, that uh, um, it would be better to be a pig in Herod's house than his own son because Herod was Jewish and they didn't eat pigs. They wouldn't slaughter pigs. And so he was saying, basically, if you're a son, watch out because Herod was ruthless. He was great in his bloodthirst and also in his architecture. He built a lot of colosseums and temples that even now when you tour across the Middle East, you can see these, the, the, the remnants of Herod's great architecture. No other Israeli monarchy was given the title great, but if there would have been one that deserved the title, it most certainly would have been King David, David the Great. Uh, David is this, his, this story, David is this character that within the idea, within all of, of the book of the Bible, it's very difficult to get the understanding of what God is doing through the word of God without the story of David. David, David is uh, mentioned outside of his story 182 times in the Old Testament and 59 times in the New Testament. So he's way beyond his own story. 
and we're going to deep dive. We could go a mile wide and an inch deep on this series, but instead we're going to focus in and go a, a, an inch wide and a mile deep, really beginning to seek out the, the, the nuts and the bolts, the, the ins and the outs, the, all of the nuances of of David, And here's what I, I need you to do in order for this to make sense. In or, you've got to approach this series um, in, a, in, a, in a way that, 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 in other words, you need to do this. Don't put David in a suit and tie today. Don't put David in 21st century uh, Western Americanized Christianity. All right? Uh, David is a primitive warlord, guerrilla mercenary living in the edge of the Bronze Age, trying to put together, he's more of a tribal chief, gathering these tribes of Israel together than he is any kind of monarchical leader. He is ruthless. He's bloodthirsty. And <clears throat> the truth is, write this down in your notes, <clears throat> David's story is not in the Bible to point us towards David. Because David in and of, in and of, of himself is just like you and me. He's flawed He's imperfect. He's got issues. And what we'll learn during this deep dive is for every Goliath, for every Goliath he faces, there is a Bathsheba around the corner. There's a conquering moment and yet a time of weakness and pride and hubris. For every act of compassion that David shares with a nation and with individuals, there will be slaughtering of men and women, children and infants. There'll be this season, this story in his life to just pay the wedding dowry, the bridal dowry, the cost of getting a bride. He will mutilate 200 men on the battlefield and one day circumcise 200 men that did not want to be circumcised. Ouch. He was a brilliant military leader Brilliant military leader, but also he was a hated father. And some of his own sons try to form a coup against him. When you read the book of Psalms, you understand David himself was a spirit-led poet with prophetic and messianic insights. Prophetic meaning that God was speaking through him about the future of Israel and the future of life. But also messianic meaning that God was speaking through David about what the Messiah would look like in the future. Messiah is the Hebrew word that simply means the anointed one. And God had chosen since the beginning of the foundations of the earth were formed. There was going to be an anointed one that would come and save Israel. Come and save humanity. And the Israelites thought it was going to be a king. It was going to be a king but it wasn't going to be the way they thought the king would come. There was going to be this Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointing was, was going to come. And yet David, although he wrote prophetically and he wrote messianic prophecies about the soon and coming King Jesus, he also broke the laws of God and man. He was a lawbreaker. He was an outlaw. He did things that hurt the heart of God. Yet, History knows him not because David wrote it, not because his right-hand man Joab wrote it, not because the prophet Nathan wrote it, but because God himself said it. God is the one who gave David the title, a man after God's heart. It was God that gave him that title. Through all of the ups and the downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God would say, this is good news for you and very good news for me and especially good news for me. 
Because in the middle of all of our imperfections, you still have the capacity to be known by God himself as a man or a woman chasing after him. That even with the shadows in your life and the junk that you've gone through, we can be inspired by David's victories. We can. But we can also be shocked by his sin. And you can be inspired by the victories God has done in your life. And then there are times where you're shocked by your own sin. And you can do this. You can tolerate the shadows in your own life and just live that way and live in the shadows. Or in the middle of it all, you can find the light. And that's what we see in the life of David, in the leadership of David. But ultimately, ultimately, that's what Jesus wants to, you to find through him in your own life too. As I said earlier, David's story is not in the Bible to point us towards David. In fact, write it down. David's story is in the Bible to point us toward Jesus. All of the stories in the Bible are not there by accident. Nothing is wasted in Scripture. These stories of the Bible are not stories about people trying to get close to God. These are stories about God desperately wanting to get close to people. And that's the story he's sharing through all of the life, the leadership, the ups and the downs of King David. Israel is in a place, the geography and the, na the, na the nation, there is no constitution, okay? There is no process of elections. It is these people kind of grow up and they're anointed by a priest and it all kind of happens in a back room in a, in a little powwow in a tent and out emerges the new leader and they drink the cup and there it is and it just kind of happens. There's no real authority. In fact, they're living in a day and age where the Bible describes it this way, in this time, Everybody did as they saw fit in their own eyes. It was absolute anarchy. It was depravity like you've not seen. It was chaos in the streets. It, it, was, it was a terrible time to be living. And this whole timeline points us towards the story of Jesus. And the nation has now said, listen, we've gone out of Egypt, out of slavery. We've wandered in the desert for 40 years. We've conquered some cities in the promised land. Now we're trying to figure out this new land, this new promised land. And can I just tell you the whole way the nation is? It's not like what we have when you think of North America, like Canada up north, the United States in the middle, the 50 there, and then Mexico. It's not like that. It's like it would be the way that it is in the time of Israel like this, it would be like Lufkin is an Israeli tribe, but like down the road in Dybal or up the road in Henderson is a, a Canadian stronghold, okay? Oh, don't you know. Canadian stronghold in Henderson. Watch out for those Canadians. They'll, they'll smile to you. They'll smile you to death. Like, so you have, you don't have like this real clear border security. You could have a, a neighboring village be a group of outlaw raiders known as the Amalekites. And over on this side, you could have the Philistine army stronghold and you could be right stuck in the middle there in Bethlehem, okay? So there is all of this incredible in, intensity going on. And each of these other nations, they have a king. And so the nation of Israel starts saying, we want a king too. We need a king. And really, they, they, they are searching for the same thing you and I are searching for. In fact, in your notes, write this down. All of us, whether you realize it or not, you and I are searching for a king. You're searching for a king. 
I'm not talking about the political landscape of this nation, although we definitely have our hopes pushed into one political party or another these days. But really, we would define searching for a king in this, in this way for today's purposes. It's whatever I'm seeking for stability, prosperity, and happiness. And the nation of Israel realized that all these other nations had a king, and the king was leading their armies, and, and the king was helping them raid and get more loot, and, and the king was settling disputes, and the king was making sure they had border security, and the, the king was doing this and that and the other. And whatever you're putting all of your stability, your prosperity, and your happiness in, I want to tell you something. Believe it or not, that's your king. That's who you're placing on the heart of your life to say, this is what rules. And it looks different for different people. For some, they're searching for a king, and the name of that king is king marriage. And if they can just get married, that will bring the stability they were looking for, the prosperity they were hoping for, the happiness. If they can just excel and get that degree finished and get a job in a different field, then I'll feel happy. If I, can if I can just fix this situation, if I can just break that habit, then I'll have stability and prosperity and happiness. If I can just have a family, if I can just grow a family and just have, have kids of my own and, and just start off and, and be able to just be a, a mom or be a dad, and then I'll finally understand what happiness is all about. Every single one of us are searching for a king. Every one of us. And it, and it places its name in different ways. And this whole story, before we get into the story of David, we actually have to, you know, rewind back into the origin story. Before there's a Star Wars The New Hope, we're going to back it up into the Phantom Menace. And for all of you that aren't nerds, it's just... Backing up and doing a story before the story. So we're going to tell a story before the story that, that really seems on the surface not to really connect much. Oh, but it so does. It so connects and is critical and pivotal. It is a linchpin story in the life and leadership of David. We go to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we read about a guy named Elkanah. Anybody named Elkanah in the house? Elkanah, what a cool name. And, and it, the, the Bible story starts like this. It's a true story. Elkanah had two wives. It's already complicated. <laughs> like, it's already complicated. Elkanah had two wives. And can I tell you, David lived in the middle of a polygamous household. Multiple wives, multiple mistresses. Like Jesus, you know, Paul says, gives us the reality of the New Testament about monogamy and the way marriage should be. That's after David. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. That's after David. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil. <laughs> after David. You're going you're gonna to see a lot of these things. If you try to put David into the 21st century, you're going to struggle. You try to make him a Southern Baptist preacher with the Bible under his, like you're going you're gonna to have a hard time. Here we go, Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. We'll call her Penny or Panini for those of you that are hungry. Panini, her name meant grilled toast. So Penny had children, uh-oh, but Hannah had none. 
Obviously, the arc of the story is beginning to unfold. And year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. He took his family, Penny, Hannah, Penny's kids, and Hannah with no kids, and they would go to the temple there in Shiloh and they would sacrifice. They would sacrifice animals to the Lord. And there was a portion of the animals they would sacrifice, and then there would be leftovers that they would take. They wouldn't waste any of the sacrifice. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penny and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now, when the Bible shows us in antiquity and through this, there's this uh, connectivity to the idea of barrenness and hopelessness for the nation. God many times will use a story of barrenness and relate it to the spiritual climate of what's taking place in the entire tribes of Israel. But truth be told, in a room this size and there in Nacogdoches and maybe some family members of our guys there in Duncan and Dyball... Um, barrenness has, has been an issue for some. Um, not being able to get pregnant or getting pregnant, but not being able to, to carry a child to term. Um, it's a real struggle, and I think there's not a woman in any culture that, that if they had experienced the desire to have children and not be able to, there's probably not a woman that doesn't relate to Hannah. And Hannah is not just hurting because she cannot get pregnant. It's, it's a completely different, it's a, it's, a, it's a different situation for her in that time than it is for us. For Hannah, getting pregnant and having children means the future and everything for the family because they're living in an agrarian society. And the only way you can make it, the only way you can have stability, prosperity, and true happiness is that you have fields that you can harvest. And the only way to really have fields that you can harvest is you have to have workers that will plant the seed in the fields and then work the harvest and gather the harvest. And the more kids you have, the less workers you have to pay on the outside, the stronger your crops can become because the more workers you have. So by having children, it's growing the Elkanah, Penny, and Hannah Incorporated. And Penny's, Penny's providing and Hannah's finding out that, that, that she's not being able to add to the company business. That's one element of it. The other element is that there is no 401ks. There is no pension plan. There is no retirement. The only way that really families would survive after the husband would die, these widows would survive on their sons and daughters. They would, they would rely on them building a little guest house off the side of their own homes. And mother-in-laws and mothers would come and live with their sons and daughters. I know, it sounds crazy. <laughs> And, and Elkanah understood to a degree, but, but we'll see in a minute. He didn't really understand. He was a man, you know, he like little dents in some areas. And, and he gave a double portion to, sh to, sh to show her, hey, you're not forgotten. But that's not what she was. She didn't need a double portion of meat. She, she, just wanted, she just wanted to have a child. Furthermore, 
This was important because the nation was growing and we needed more men to serve in this startup military in order to protect these little tribes of Israel from being consumed by the remaining enemies there in the promised land of the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Philistines. And so it was very important so you can understand why this isn't just she can't get pregnant and have kids. This is she has no way to invent or better her future. And it's going to end with her unless something miraculous takes place. Now, because the Lord closed Hannah's womb, the plot thickens. Her rival, Penny, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Oh, I know she didn't. <laughs> what? Penny wasn't like, hey, sweetie, it's going to be okay, girl. It's going to be okay. No, it was like, oh, man, I'm so tired, Hannah. You don't even know. I can't even right now. Like all these kids that I'm having to take care of. It's like I just keep getting prego. <laughs> Do you mind doing the dishes for me tonight? I'm going to go get my nails done. Me and Elkin are going to go have a date. We just have not. I just cannot give him the time he deserves because of all these kids running around. And Hannah's like, Hannah's irritated. <laughs> Now, it's not irritated like as in she sees her across the mall, you know. It's like, hold my hopes, you know. <laughs> you think you know me? You don't know me. You don't know me, Penny. <laughs> okay, it's not that kind of irritated. It's actually in the, in the original, you may not get anything out of this, but I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> uh, the... the the original language, the word for irritated, it's the only time this word is used for an internal sense of an emotion. Every other time in the Bible, this same original language word is used. It's for a storm, um, winds blowing out of control, a hurricane wind, a typhoon. Like it's, that's what it's used for. So when she says she's irritated, she's like, like mm. it's, there's this tossing inside of her. She's just She's so wounded and, and, and tossed around by this provoking of Elkanah's other wife. The Bible says this wasn't a one-time occurrence. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the, the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I don't know about you, but maybe there's been a time in your life where you've been so distraught so concerned, so guilty that you couldn't eat, that you, you had worried yourself sick, a situation in life that you wish you could change because your son or daughter isn't going the direction you wish they would go, and it just, it's hard for you to even eat. The marriage is in struggle. The, the situation has gotten bleak, and what you had your stability in, what was prospering is now feels hopeless. What, what seemed to be happiness, now those happiness, that happy circumstance has gone away, and you find yourself where Hannah is. Now, her husband, he tries to be a good sport about the whole thing, but, but you can tell he's a little dense. He said, Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping, girl? Come on, girl, let me sing you a song. Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? <laughs> I love this. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Like, girl, you got all this. You got a drink it in, Hannah, 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 banana. Drink it in, Hannah. And she's like, I won't kill you. 
Am I not the same as ten sons? I'm come on, you know, ten baby. I'm Elkanah. And she's like, yeah, hard no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I wonder how many of us think they're gonna find stability, prosperity, and happiness in some kind of romantic interlude. Some kind of romantic relationship is gonna answer, gonna fill the need. I'm just feeling so unappreciated, undervalued. I wish someone would notice me and month after month or year after year or after a decade, this spouse tries to find something. It's searching for a king or searching for a queen, searching for something to give you the satisfaction you wish you could find. And all of those things are temporary. So here we find Hannah. And once she had... Finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, this double portion. The Bible says Hannah stood up. Another translation says she arose. And the word there for stood up isn't just like, may I be excused, please. No, there was a determination in the word. There, there is a, uh, there's a, a, a boldness connected to, to this language. She, she stood with determination. She eats and she stands in determination And in her deep anguish, Hannah prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Many times when people go through a devastating situation in their life, it's crazy that they actually stop praying. They weep bitterly, but they weep bitterly by themselves. They go through a tough patch in their marriage, and so they go, they leave the church instead of diving into the church. They push away from relationships instead of inviting people they know they can trust into relationship. There's this crazy thing that the enemy wants to do. He wants to divide and conquer. And what we see that Hannah doesn't do, she doesn't let Penny divide and conquer her so that she can have Elkanah to hit herself. Hannah leans into God, weeping bitterly. In fact, I don't have the scripture with us, but the the Bible says that even Eli, the priest, was watching her, and she was there at the temple, and she's praying. She's not, her mouth is moving, but, but she can't even, she's not even loud. The bitterness of her tears and the bitterness of her weeping, she's, Her mouth is moving, but her words aren't coming out loud. And there are times where you just need to to pray. You don't even know the words to pray. Eli sees her, and he thinks she's drunk. What are you doing? Go home. And she says to her, to, to Eli, the priest, what she says to God in essence. She says, she made a vow, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. In the nation of Israel, it wasn't common that they saw God as a personal God. They saw God as the God of the nation. And we see that Hannah is learning a principle about God. He's personal. Remember me. And don't forget your servant, but would you give her a son? And here's her promise to the Lord. If you do this, I'm going to give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now notice when she says, I will give him to the Lord. It's not like you praying, oh, Lord, if you'll just let the team win this last game, 
I will start a small group in my house. <laughs> like, like, okay, whatever. She is so serious about giving him to the Lord. It's not like I'll raise him in church and we'll go to Sunday school and we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that, that, he, that he doesn't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. He, she says, I'm going to give him to the Lord. And we know that this is a major sacrifice because she says no razor will ever be used on his head. In other words, the only way you could become a servant in the house of the Lord is if you took a Nazarite vow. Either you were born as a Levite, born into it, or if you weren't born into it, you could convert into it, but you had to take a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow, one of those vows was you would not cut your hair. And so you see that now she's saying, I'm, yes, I'm just, I'm just trying to find value in you, God. And if you give me a son, it's not about what I get out of it. It's actually about what you get out of it. And here's what happens. Then she went her way after she was done praying, and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Notice that the very next thing she did was not get pregnant. The very next thing she did was she washed her face, she washed her hands, she sat down, she ate some food, and she chose to trust God. See, many times when we pray and there's a situation, we, we, we think it should be this way. We think pray, get pregnant, and that will bring joy. Pray, get pregnant, have joy. This, was, this was, could have been the concoction that Hannah came up with. But you, you, it may not be your formula, but many times our formula looks, pray, get noticed, have joy. Pray, get married, have joy. Pray, get the promotion. Pray, get over that situation. Pray, get a better relationship. Pray, get the prayer answered exactly the way we want it. Pray, get healed, have joy. And friends, this, this is not the order in which Hannah really found her joy. This is not where she found her her trust. In fact, she prayed, then she chose joy, and then she trusted. There was no guarantee from God that this was going to happen from God himself. And Eli said, may God grant it the way that you have prayed for it. And she simply trusted the word of the Lord. There's going to be times in your life where it doesn't look like it's going to turn out. Last Saturday, eight days ago, I, I officiated a funeral. I prayed for a woman to be healed of cancer. And the way she was healed is she died and went to heaven. That's the way God healed her. I didn't pray that way. I prayed that God would heal her on this side of heaven. And God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted him to answer it. But do you know that she didn't pray, get healed, and have joy? She prayed, she chose joy, and she trusted. And she showed that example for her family and her community and for me as her pastor. And that's what Hannah did in her community too. And sure enough, it doesn't always work this way. But she did, she conceived. And, and you know, I, I, I took a moment and I, just, I took a side note in the first service because I felt like it was God and I feel the same way now. And I just want to pause for a second, and I want to pray for everybody. Because when I talk, I, I know when I talk about a woman who can't have children, that, that hits some of you differently. It hits some of you very personally. Or maybe you could get pregnant, but you've had a 
miscarriage after miscarriage. And you're trying to figure out, God, what are you saying? I mean, are you trying to... Te- I, don't believe, I don't believe God gives people cancer. That's not my theology. Um, I, I don't believe God heals everybody on this side of heaven either. I, I, and I, don't, I can't explain it, and you can't explain it. And it's part of having faith in a God who's bigger than us. And I, I don't know. I do know that we can lean on him and not our own understanding because your understanding will lead you astray. But I just want to pray for you if you're a family who's affected by not being able to have kids right now. I just want to pray for you. Father, we, we hear this story and it brings up emotions in a lot of different ways. For some, it brings up this emotion of joy because there was a season they could not get pregnant and then they did and now they have kids. And For others, they're in the middle of trying and others, they feel like this is not going to happen. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be so much God to them. That they would find their joy in you and trust in you. And Lord, I pray a blessing on their life. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, for those desiring to be pregnant. God, would you do what only you can do? I pray that they would know that the child will not fill anything. You fill everything. May they go to you first. Trust you first. And God, would you do what only you can do? Would you provide miracles in bodies today? Would you provide, maybe it's not the miracle of childbirthing, but it's the miracle of adoption. It's the miracle of, of someone else being able to sacrifice and, and, and offer their child for adoption. Lord, would there be an opportunity where where connecting of the dots take place. And I pray that over our family of Timber Creek Church and the the families that they love and they know that are going through that hurt and that time of questioning and wondering. And I pray blessings upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hannah, after a certain amount of time, gets pregnant. And she has a child. She has a son. And she writes a little song. And the song is in 1 Samuel 2. And the song she writes goes like this. Let it go. No. It's, a... <laughs> it's not that. It's my heart rejoices in the Lord. And the Lord, my horn is lifted high like an oxen with large antlers. The horns are lifted high in response to the goodness of God. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Notice she isn't writing a song that says, you are so beautiful to me, little one. The focus of her song is not into the delivery of a child. The focus of her song is the trust in an almighty God. And that little son, she would name him Samuel. And Samuel would go back into that temple that years earlier she was praying in front of without any words, but praying passionately to God. Samuel would grow up and become an almighty priest and prophet. And Samuel would later be the one who would be responsible to anoint from a flask of oil, anoint the very first king of Israel, King Saul the Benjamite. Years later, Samuel would be the one that would look at Saul in the eyes and say, Saul, you have denied your God. The responsibility to be king is ripped from your hands, Saul. 
And Saul would beg him in that moment, don't, don't take the kingdom from me. Can I at least just look like I'm king? And Saul, for a couple of decades, would have the public appearance of, king, of the king. But in private, the anointing was lifted from him. And in that same moment, Samuel, this young boy, miracle baby of Hannah, would go and find a little ranch on the outskirts of a little town called Bethlehem and would call in the sons of this man named Jesse. And one after one would look at them and say, no, is there another? No, is there another? And here would come a scraggly little pimple-faced teenaged boy. And from the oil anointed from the horn, he would anoint this boy as the next king. Simultaneously, Saul is acting like king, but the kingdom's been ripped by God from his hands. And a little shepherd boy now is anointed by God as king and is going to have to wait in the shadows. And these two men, larger-than-life characters on the stage of Israeli history, these two men are going to, at some point, collide ferociously like two bullet trains. How is God going to get them together? How is God going to bring his kingdom come, his will be done? That's what we're going to unpack in this series on the shadow king. But with the rest of the time we have, I want to offer you just a few shadow casts in the story. Not just a shadow that's cast by a large figure, but like the cast of a movie, there are these cast of characters that you don't see in the story of Hannah that are very much alive in the story because all of these stories of God point back to Jesus. And the first one is this. There's this shadow cast. It's the parallel between Hannah and Israel. Would you look up here? Look at this. Israel wants security and a king. We need a king. All the other nations have a king. We need a king because, man, we don't know if God's really going to come through or not because sometimes we pray and he doesn't answer. So we need stability and prosperity and happiness, and we think we can get it in a king because the other nations have it in a king. And Hannah wants the same, but she wants security in a son. But God says to both of them, security isn't found in kings, Israel. Security isn't found in sons, Hannah. Security isn't found in your choice of a president, America. Putting so much stock on the things that you think will bring stability, prosperity, and happiness. Be careful that you don't search for anything stronger than you search for the king. God says to both of them, find security in me. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And God is saying, don't, don't trust in an earthly king. I'm your king. Let me be your king. Hannah, don't just trust in a son. Let me, let me be your source. Number two, he says, there's a parallel between two impossible births. There's two impossible births that this story connects the dots to. And the first story is obviously Hannah. But there's another impossible birth later on in the story of God. And it's a woman named Mary. And Hannah and Mary have some parallel situations going on. For Hannah, she's not able to conceive. Her womb is closed. But for Mary, she's not married She's not married. She shouldn't be pregnant. She shouldn't be getting pregnant because she has a fiancé. And she would be, she would be uh, 
cast out if she were to get pregnant out of wedlock. So look, a baby for Hannah meant gaining everything. Meant gaining everything for Hannah, but a baby for Mary meant losing everything. What would her parents say? What would Joseph say? What would her culture say? What would her family say? How how is she going to explain all this? But both of them found security in God. They both found that it wasn't about what family was going to say. It was that God spoke. It's that God said. And do you know that all the, in Samuel 2, Hannah writes a song. In Luke 2, Mary writes a song. And both of them, when you read them together, they're both so similar in trusting God for everything. Samuel would grow up and be a prophet and a priest and he would anoint kings. Jesus would grow up and he would become the prophet priest and king God delivered Hannah from a curse and shame gave her hope for the future but here's where it takes a crazy turn God did not deliver Jesus from a curse and shame in fact God had Jesus take on our curse and our shame Hannah no longer had to hold her head down She could hold her horn high because her shame was taken away in that nation. But for you and for me, we can hold our heads up high, not because you took care of your shame, not because God gave, not Hannah was given a son named Samuel, but God gave you a son and his name is Jesus. And he took on the cross your shame. He took on the cross your curse of death, your your curse of sin. because he's the great king. And you know, we are mesmerized, everybody. We're mesmerized with kingdoms. That's why there's this parallel between Hannah and us. Hannah and us. Because Hannah was searching for significance, you're searching for significance. Israel and Hannah were looking for that satisfaction and you're looking for it too. And you know what? For the irreligious, those that don't even care about God, do you know what they're looking for? They're looking for a king. But the irreligious, they think they need something instead of Jesus. So if they can find uh, awakening, enlightenment, money, fame, feel good, uh, a, a better sense of awareness, my truth, that may not be your truth. That's okay. Your truth and my truth don't have to be the same. So I'm just going to search for whatever. As long as I'm not hurting you, who cares? I'm going to find something that gives me satisfaction and prosperity and happiness instead of Jesus. But here's the problem of those that get religious, that, that become a Christian, but then they, they, they get, they get Christian-y instead of following after Christ himself. The religious think they need to, something in addition to Jesus. So then it becomes that if I, if I don't do this or do that or make sure I don't ever fail or, oh man, I can't have any bad things in my life. That's what's beautiful about David. Tons of shadows in his life, everybody. But somehow through it all, he put his hope in God, even though he was very, very flawed. And the truth is, we are, we are, in, we are mesmerized by a king and kingdom. You know it's true. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom. And that kingdom had a king. And because that king was in charge, the land flourished. Everybody did well and everybody smiled. Things were good 
Things were happy. Parties went on for days. But at some point in that kingdom, something took the king away. The king had to go on a journey and was away for a while. And while he was gone, evil crept in to the kingdom. And there were dark days across the land. And people began to to fight each other. And they longed for the day that the the winter of that kingdom would go away. And that the, the king that was so good would come back and restore the goodness. Do you know why we're mesmerized with stories like that? Because it's the story of God. He's king. And Jesus prepares a place for us, the final kingdom of heaven and earth. This heaven and earth, this will pass away. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And and the king of king of kings will reign victoriously with his sons and his daughters. Until that time, you and I have to understand that King Jesus is the ultimate answer for everyone's greatest need. Everyone's. Whatever your need is, Jesus can meet that need in who he is not what he does. Lean into that today. And look at me, everybody, with your eyes, Nacogdoches, Duncan, Dybal, Lufkin. The number one kingdom Jesus is after is the one that's in your heart, the throne of your heart. And if you've not invited him to be the Lord of your life, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And if today you're here and you need to invite Jesus to be the Lord and Savior, the King, you need to to form a coup d'etat. You need to to form a coup and just get yourself off your throne and let Jesus reign. All across this room, I'm going to invite you, all of our rooms, close your eyes, bow your heads. And in this moment, you're just going to do business with God. And in your own words, you say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. I make a terrible savior for myself. Would you, would you wash my sin away, the stuff that separates me from you, the stuff that says, I want to be in charge and I want you to be in charge. Thank you, Jesus, for not being mad at me, but for loving me in this moment, loving me so much that you would give me this moment to make things right with you. So I surrender all to you today. And for those of you, heads bowed, eyes still closed in all of our rooms, you're saying, oh, there's a battle. There's a search for happiness and satisfaction and prosperity. And I've been, I've been having a trouble with serving different kings. And I just want to, one more time, lay that down to Jesus again. I've got my own shadows that I'm asking Jesus to help me with. If that's you, would you just put a hand up in the air too? Me too, everybody. Me too. Jesus, thank you that you don't meet us where we should be. You meet us where we are. And you help us with next steps. In this moment, Lord, give them the faith. Give them the trust that they can walk out of here with not a downcast face, but just like Hannah, even though the answer hasn't been presented yet, they can trust you. And that changes their emotion. That changes their whole downcast heart trusting in you and yielding to you as the king of their life. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. In every location, everywhere, said amen.